Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the news out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SubChina Access, or check out subchina.com for all the original reported stories, op-eds, great regular columns, and our growing range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo. I am coming to you from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. A year ago, on March 11th, the World Health Organization officially declared that COVID-19 had reached pandemic proportions. While we've seen scientists manage some truly impressive feats, including the very fast sequencing of the SARS-CoV-2 genome, the rapid development of tests, and perhaps most impressively, the development in record time of multiple highly effective vaccines, including really cutting-edge mRNA vaccines, we've also seen, alas, over 2.6 million people succumb to the disease worldwide, with nearly a fifth of those here in the United States. And there are still important unanswered questions about the origin of the disease, the answers to exactly when, where, and how this particular coronavirus jumped from its presumed animal host to humans may not indeed be known for a very long time, if ever. Well, joining me today to look back at the early days of the outbreak and to look forward at what we might be doing together with China, uh, to look at Chinese response, to look at all, a lot of other questions, is Deborah Seligson, uh, who was the State Department's Environment, Science, Technology, and Health Counselor at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing from 2003 to 2007. Debbie is now Assistant Professor of Political Science at Villanova University in Philadelphia. She pivoted to academia after coming back to the States and finished her Ph.D. at UC San Diego in 2018. She's also a Wilson-centered China fellow. Debbie, welcome back to Seneca. It's great to have you. Thank you. Great to see you again, Kaiser. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a while now since I've seen you in person, but it's uh, it's good that we're constantly talking on on various social media. <laughs> anyway, let's start with something that's bothered both of us pretty profoundly. Uh, it seems to me that there are good faith, medically and epidemiologically vital reasons to to look seriously into a disease's origins, but there are also bad faith reasons that are ultimately meant to to shift blame, to morally stigmatize, to rile up a, a population. How, how do you tell a difference, Debbie? Oh, you started right off with a really hard question. <laughs> um, I, I mean, on the face of it, I don't know how you tell the difference, except when you're looking at whether people are talking in scientific terms or in kind of rabble-rousing terms, as you suggest. I mean, scientists talk about weighing the evidence, whether you can rule out or can't rule out hypothesis, what the preponderance of the evidence points toward, and they look carefully at the DNA, right? Right. That's mostly not what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of accusations on the basis of little to no evidence, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it would be useful to know where disease arises, and particularly to prevent reemergence of the disease, right? That the fact that they figured out that the original SARS virus came from civet cats enabled the Chinese to 
make sure that they weren't exposing people to civets anymore, right? Right. So it, it can be very useful, especially if you, like in the case of SARS, have eradicated the virus. But it doesn't tell you a great deal as far as I've ever heard from any scientist in terms of, and I am not a scientist, I should make that clear. A political scientist. I'm a political scientist. <laughs> I'm a social scientist. But in right. terms of coming up with treatments or coming up with vaccines, the most useful reason to know would be to be able to test those on the near relative that also gets the same disease. That could be useful, but it's not going to tell you what the treatment should be or anything like that, right? Right. So it's mostly about preventing future pandemics. And as far as I can tell, we already know the key things we need to know, which is there are a lot of these coronaviruses around right. China and it appears other places in Asia as well, that the risk that they would, since SARS, I think prior to SARS, nobody understood the risk of coronaviruses. They were viewed as benign common colds. But since SARS, it's been well understood that the risk was pretty severe. And actually, you know, there was a paper in 2015 saying this is the huge risk of a pandemic, right? So there's been a lot of understanding of that and the need to continue to track these bat populations to follow these various coronaviruses that was already known in the scientific community that is still obviously important. It is clearly one risk of a new emerging infection. There are many risks of new and emerging infections and we've had new diseases pop up everywhere from the United States to Latin America, to China, to South Asia, to Africa, you know, new emerging diseases pop up all over the world. It right. clearly should be a top priority as the interaction between humans and animals on a scale never seen before in world history, because there are so many of us and we are sp so spread out. Clearly, zoonosis is a major, major problem that we have to be watching for. But, you know, we've had diseases like Zika. We've ha had, of course, HIV AIDS. We have, um, you know, Ebola, Nipah virus. There's so many of these different viruses, Lyme disease in the U.S., West Nile. And so we have to be watching for these everywhere. That's right. And clearly we need to watch for coronaviruses in China. So where are we right now when it comes to understanding COVID origins? So the, the, the WHO team, uh, Dr. Peter ben Barak and uh, Dr. Peter Daszak, uh, they are saying that they still believe that the natural reservoir was bats, as you said, uh, but that there was probably some intermediary species that's still not been identified, though. We've heard everything from pangolins to raccoon dogs to, to rabbits suggested. They also played down this Wuhan Institute of Virology lab leak theory, the, the Trump administration's pet theory. So, so where are we now? I don't think we're any further. I mean, I, as far as I can tell, I don't think we're any further than we were before the WHO team went to China. And mm -hmm. that doesn't surprise me. I don't think sort of quasi diplomatic legalistic type missions are going to be the way the origins of this disease get determined. I think it's right. going to be sort of 
long-term lab work and, you know, tracing these um, DNA lineages. You know, Peter Daszak had this very active program with the Wuhan Institute of Virology that the Trump administration also cut off the funding to. And that was really unfortunate because that was... I mean, they clearly collect more of these viruses than anybody else, and that would have been really helpful. Um, The paper I was talking about that warned about this risk of a coronavirus global pandemic in 2015 was actually a UNC Chapel Hill with Wuhan Institute of Virology paper. Mm -hmm. So there's been a ton of work done with them by lots and lots of reputable scientists around the world. And they clearly are where these things are collected and a lot of the knowledge is. Uh, You know, the pangolin was not, that particular coronavirus was not as closely related to the one that is making so many of us sick as, for example, the one in civets was to the SARS that hit people in 2003. So they still, you know, think there's some missing link. And I think that's what they know. There doesn't seem to be a great deal more actually known since the Anderson et al. paper in Nature in I think it was Nature Medicine in in March of last year that basically outlined three possibilities, sort of a zoonotic origin somewhere near Wuhan, a zoonotic origin somewhere maybe further away from Wuhan that then traveled, and the lab leak hypothesis. They said the lab leak was the least likely of the three. Again, they said you couldn't rule it out for sure. I think most scientists still say that with the majority of scientists continuing to say it seems like the least likely. Right. I also would point out in terms of Chinese government response, the part that I find not credible is the idea that they know the origins and they're not telling anyone. Right. Which right, is right. what that seems to be implied in a lot of the right. That's what mm-hmm. seems to be implied, and that makes very little sense because as we know they have fired hundreds of people. They've prosecuted people for badly handling this disease. In the past, when there have been, um, you know, food, food poisoning things or other things, people have been arrested. They've been charged. Um, if, the, if the Chinese government thought that it was a scientist at the Wuhan Institute of Virology that did this to the people of Wuhan, remember, these were the first people that were badly damaged by this, right? right. And have clearly hurt China's image in the world. They hurt the Chinese economy. Why wouldn't they arrest that person? I, right. You know, that is their usual their response. <laughs> so... I don't think they know either, right? I And what I would say is they figured out the origins of both SARS and MERS pretty quickly. And, and so I think that's why there's a bit of an expectation that it should be. But many other diseases, it's been hard to find the origins of. And, right, right, right. you know, and, and look, smallpox, the only disease we've ever eradicated off the face of the earth, we still don't know where it came from. 
So there are a lot of things we can do. It's interesting because I now teach a politics of pandemics course. And one of the things that's interesting is an, an awful lot of the measures that are still useful to this day were figured out before people knew anything about disease. Quarantine goes back to the 14th century, right? Mm -hmm, So, mm -hmm. you know, knowing the origins clearly could be useful, but it isn't the sine qua non. Right, right, right. Deb, let's talk about your experience with SARS in 2003. Uh, You've argued that China has actually improved considerably in terms of its public health policies and its transparency even, uh, the ability to respond pretty quickly to transmit critical data up and down through the chain of command uh, in its willingness to work with public health authorities in other countries. And that this was all kind of actually in evidence in the response to COVID-19. Uh, just so we have a baseline, remind us of just how badly China handled SARS in late 2002 and, and 2003. Where did they come from? Okay, so SARS emerged in Guangdong at some point in late 2002, maybe October, November. Um, by December, there's massive rumors everywhere. If you remember, those were the pre-smartphone days when everybody was text messaging on their cell phones, warning each other not to go near the hospitals because there was something making people sick at hospitals, right? right, right. right? The Chinese government really never reported that. Um, The WHO doesn't really figure out that there's something going on until I believe February. And that's when the back and forth between China and the WHO really starts with huge pressure being put on the Chinese to tell, to explain what's going on. Actually, I'm sorry, they must have known in January. So the first WHO visit is in February. By then, actually, the, the, epidemic in Guangdong is waning. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so I think a lot of it is people themselves. And we've seen this over and over again with COVID too, right? I mean, a lot of social distancing is people themselves deciding rather than what the government says. So people stayed away from hospitals. But, but so, so the, the thing was the SARS epidemic spreads to Hong Kong, one of the WHO doctors actually gets infected. He winds up in Vietnam. He gets sick. He actually dies at the end of March. Mm. So it spreads from Hong Kong to much of Southeast Asia, to Toronto, then to places in the U.S., to Germany, et cetera, et cetera. Although it was much less infectious than COVID, right? Right, So each, I mean, all told, there were about 8,000 cases. So each of these little clusters was much, much smaller. And all of the stuff that we did at the beginning of COVID was based on thinking it was like SARS, right? SARS, the transmission was within about three feet. Surfaces were really important because famously there was the elevator buttons at the Metropole Hotel in Hong Kong, which infected, was it like 50 people? Lots and lots of people. Yeah, one guy sneezed on an elevator pad and all these people got sick. So that's why we thought surfaces were so important, right? Right, right. So the whole thing is going on all through February, through March. The WHO is pressuring them. The rumors start floating around that SARS is also in Beijing. The Chinese government is denying it. WHO visits again. And it really isn't until April 15th that the WHO manages to figure out that 
and actually see a SARS patient at one of the hospitals wow. in Beijing. And they'd been visiting for five days. And the Chinese, the, the Beijing city government, in conjunction probably with people at the Ministry of Health, were literally moving patients from hospital to hospital to avoid having WHO see them. Right. So... They, somehow, WHO finally sees some patients. The Chinese um, acknowledge that it's a problem. April 20th, the government officially acknowledges that SARS is in Beijing. They um, fire the Beijing mayor. They fire the health minister. They put um, Vice Premier Wu Yi in charge of the health ministry. They bring Wang Qishan to Beijing, I believe, at that point, Right. right? And they just decide to deal with it, right? So that's when they have sort of a big masking and social distancing measures to really get it under control, along with, as we've seen this time too, lots of spraying of disinfectant everywhere, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> Including outdoors where it's not actually clear what it's doing. But it works. I mean, they managed to control the disease. And by July, WHO was able to announce that there are no cases anywhere in the world. And that's very unusual, right? There aren't that many examples of a disease that appears and then disappears um, in a few months. But the cover-up was basically more than four months. And the pressure that the WHO had to to give was pretty considerable. Now, what WHO does in all these cases is a bit of a, they do some diplomacy, some, you know, it's like they push sometimes, they plead sometimes, they wheedle sometimes because they don't have any power. And this isn't a China-specific issue. They don't have any power anywhere in the world to force countries to do things. I mean, at that time, countries were not even obligated by any international treaty to report new diseases. There was a list of diseases they were required to report, which were like but cholera. But no new diseases, right? Yeah, it was like a list. So nothing new was on it. That's been changed. But this still is an issue, and WHO runs into problems with countries not being forthcoming with outbreaks all the time. So their general mode is to try to coax them to be more helpful. Because remember, the incentives that countries and towns and cities have to not report the small outbreak and hope they can get it under control before it has any economic consequences are very large. And the problem from the public health point of view is that diseases spread exponentially. So if you don't control that tiny little outbreak, it moves very, very quickly. And those early warnings turn out to have been really important that you didn't do. So that's the kind of push-pull, but it's not a China-specific problem. It's, It's a global problem. So that was the SARS situation. In contrast with COVID... Again, we think it probably emerged in November. That's where people right now think the earliest cases were. Mm -hmm. Clearly in December, people were starting to think there was a serious problem. Some people were, some people weren't. They were clearly arguing about it. 
And by the end of December, it does seem like there was a consensus that this was a new disease. Remember, the way it sort of first manifests, it looks like a pneumonia, right? So it takes right, people right, right. a little while to figure out what it is. And yeah, we, yeah, talk about that a little bit. I mean, how hard is it to catch a new disease and to, to identify that it is, in fact, you know, I think to a lot of people who don't understand it, they, they would say, hey, well, no, this doesn't present symptomatically like all other diseases. And can't you just like sort of throw a blood sample under a microscope and, and see that there's this new virus you haven't seen? It's obviously not that simple, but... Yeah, because they actually have to develop the test for the virus. So you don't have a right. test for a new virus. But but the other thing is we know it was really hard to recognize because even after the Chinese published the genome January 10th, you know, people in the U.S., in Italy, elsewhere, were not noticing that this is what their patients had, right? We hmm. go through months. I mean, so we know that there was... Um, some COVID in the U.S. as early as December. I believe that's true of some of the other early outbreak countries as well. And no one else identified it. They had equal opportunity to say, oh my goodness, this is a new disease, and they didn't do it. So, and even after, I mean, remember that whole period when U.S. CDC was insisting unless that you could identify someone as having contact with China, they wouldn't even test the samples? I mean, right. I it, it turns out to have been very difficult to even figure out that all these other people had it, right? That big New Rochelle, New York outbreak, it was mm -hmm. already all over New York City, and no one in New York City had noticed until the people in New Rochelle noticed, Right. So it's hard, and I right. and especially with a disease that has symptoms that look very similar to lots of others. And it it's only later as they start um, carefully tracking these patients and following their symptoms that they start identifying all these unusual symptoms like the impact on the blood supply, you know, their veins and arteries and all this kind of stuff. I mean, they didn't see that at the beginning. What they saw right. was something pneumonia-like. So wait, to be clear, you, you're not asserting that there, uh, I mean, as you said, by the end of December, there was a consensus in Wuhan among health officials in Wuhan that there were, they were, we're dealing with a new disease that there's evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. So you're not asserting that there wasn't a cover-up in Wuhan? No, in I think there were. There clearly were kind of two pieces to the cover-up, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in December, there were some people who wanted to sound the warning earlier than others. Right. Um, I tend to think that was partly actually a scientific disagreement. They have those in China, but the response can be a little more politically charged than it is in a more open society. That is oh, for, for sure. sure. But, you know, at the end of December, there's a warning posted on one of the Wuhan government websites, and that's what the WHO Beijing office spots, right? So they also didn't do what they were supposed to do, right? Because they're supposed to be reporting these up to the China CDC. Right. And it appears that in December they weren't doing that. So there there was some problem from some at some point in December then um, WHO Beijing, you know, contacts the China CDC, asks them what's going on. Very rapidly the China CDC confirms it with WHO 
And by January 3rd, we have a phone call between... George Gao. The head of China's CDC, George Gao, and the head of U.S. CDC, Robert Redfield, where they discussed everything. Um, So there's this moment in early January where people seem to be fairly forthcoming. And there are a bunch of cases being reported between the then and the 10th of January, WHO is getting daily case numbers and then they stop and they stop for about 10 days and don't start up again until the 21st. And that to me is clearly a cover up because this disease clearly did not go away. So what, what at that point were they covering up the, the number of cases, the extent of transmissibility or... Yeah, so they still were saying they didn't know whether it was human-to-human transmission. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is the period you would focus on for genuine culpability, not that sort of, you know, the period around Li Wenliang's uh, famous, now famous WeChat message on December 30th, not, you know, in this period up until January 3rd when... But it's actually afterward. It's after the CDC's been notified uh, up to the 21st, right? So if there's a period of culpability for China, that's the 10-day window you would look at. Yeah, well, the earlier period, I think there's probably some local government culpability. Oh, I think so too, yeah. But the that uh, doesn't appear to have inc- involved the central government. It seems quite likely that the central government didn't know what was going on. And... I mean, that's interesting when you compare it to the post-SARS period, because in the post-SARS period, they really revamped their reporting system. And it was extraordinary because they were able to identify single cases of bird flu, the H5N1 bird flu, um, which is very hard to do. It's much easier to identify clusters than to identify, because there wasn't much human-to-human transmission, right? So they were coming from birds to humans, so it would just crop up here, there, and not in any clear way. Um, The world was very worried that it could lead through mutation to -to human-to-human transmission. But the, the whole CDC network within China was like very, very fine-tuned to catch everything. And that went on for a number of years. It does appear that everybody had gotten a little bit lax in the years since because you would have hoped that a failure to report from the local to the central in a regular way that somebody would have noticed something funny in the data. Right. But, you know, it was December, as you know, all Chinese government organizations have to write these big end of year reports, and then they want to get ready for their Chinese New Year. So I, it seems like the central government didn't notice. And that clearly is because they weren't as keyed up about it as they would have been in, say, 2007. But I don't think that they were I mean, it doesn't appear that they knew and were hiding it. It appears they didn't know. But once people start reporting daily cases, to suddenly have none before you've taken any preventive action looks like a cover-up, right? And so Mm -hmm. I think that period from the 10th onward till the 21st when Xi Jinping acknowledges the problem and first speaks about it, is a period that appears to me to be a cover-up. And I've seen different reports arguing that it's the local that wasn't 
reporting to the center or arguing that it was the center that was covering up it. I don't know the answer to that. I'm not inside that story, but that is the period that I would point to as a serious cover up. And it's, it's short. The problem is this is a much more transmissible disease than SARS. It also transmits asymptomatically, which SARS didn't do, which nobody at the time knew. And that took a long time to figure out. And remember, it's running around in New York and in Milan at this time. So people outside China could have figured that one out, too. So, Deb, there was this period where the, you know China actually did look to the United States for help. It was clear already they right. were facing human-to-human transmission of a novel coronavirus. Uh, but there was a mismatch that you've talked about between what China yeah. was looking for and what the United States insisted on trying to help China with. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? So they have this call on the 3rd of January. Right. And then the CDC follows, US CDC follows up with a letter on the 6th of January that where they offer to help the Chinese map the genome. And that is clearly not the thing the Chinese needed help with. Right. Four days later, they had it mapped, right? Right. And since China's great DNA mapping expertise all comes from their participation in the U.S.'s Human Genome Project um, a couple decades before, we knew they knew how to do this because they did it as part of a project that we led, right? Right. And they may have, maybe you've heard of a little company called BGI, <laughs> which has like exactly. more gene sequencing machines than anyone else in the world. <laughs> Right, but BGI got its start in the Human Genome Project. So it was an NIH-funded project. And so lots of people know in the U.S. that China knows how to map genomes, right? So during SARS, that was help they needed. They sent samples along with some scientists to Atlanta to, for help in studying the virus. This That part of it was not what they needed. They published it very early. And Dr. Fauci has said, you know, they were able to actually create that Moderna vi- vaccine within five days after the publication of the virus, you know, of the genome. So that was incredibly useful. That was a great contribution to everyone. It clearly wasn't what the Chinese needed. What did they need? They well, they they needed help with treatment for one thing. I mean, finding treatments that work. We still don't have good treatments, right? We there's a lot of stuff about patient care that's been figured out over the many, many months, right? Proning and some other things and some very basic medications. But there's still a huge need for better medications than what existed. So they were really interested in that. And then they were interested in working globally on vaccines. And that part, of course, seems to have worked really well, that lots of different companies in different countries have, you know, gone at it, including a bunch in China. But the treatment side, they definitely not only could have used more help, still to this day, while the cases aren't in China, there's a desperate need for better treatments. The help with treatments in the early days flowed in the other direction. I mean, this is something I don't believe has been talked about too much in the press, but uh, I remember in the early months of the coronavirus, a lot of American and European medical professionals were looking to their counterparts in China 
I saw a lot of Zoom calls, of, uh, you know, being set up. A lot of people were, you know, telling me about uh, what was coming out of those, you know, especially with doctors who were in Wuhan, who weren't all, of course, from Wuhan. I mean, because medical professionals from all over China went to Wuhan, uh, but to talk about best practices and treatment. And if I'm not mistaken, you know, that is where uh, some of the early and, and apparently promising treatments initially like rubdesivir and hydroxychloroquine uh, were first used and, and touted as effective, which is ironic because, of course, that's all Trump could talk about for months. <laughs> you know, but uh, Yeah, I don't remember which of the the drugs were tried in China. Oh, definitely but, those two. But in terms of just these things like when to put them on ventilators, right. when to the proning, the turning them, the, the, the basic thing, essentially nursing care mm-hmm. that turns out to be part of the most crucial aspect of helping people survive if they have severe COVID. A lot of that came from just American doctors talking to um, Chinese counterparts and Basically, this was, oh, I went to medical school with some guy from Wuhan. Let me call him up and see what he has to say. And there was a lot of this, um, you know, and it it isn't that it wasn't covered in the press. It seems like it wasn't covered in the national press. Because where I've seen these stories typically is in local papers writing about their local hospital and how they were treating. There was a big feature in the Philadelphia Inquirer about Temple University Hospital, which treated the largest number of Um, COVID cases in Philadelphia and about how they were having daily calls with counterparts in Wuhan back in, you know, April type time. And I saw another similar feature from a hospital in New Jersey covered in a local New Jersey paper. So I saw some of this too. I mean, there were some of those early stories that were written in the Atlantic by by Ed Young, and and there were others as well um, that that did talk about that, uh, about some of the early cases. Uh, Once I I just finished reading Putnam's um, Bowling Alone, so I'm all about, you know, the importance of social capital right now. It's good to hear that these medical school associations were, were helpful. The other thing that was an assumption based on the SARS experience was that somehow the Chinese would need help with the sort of the testing and tracing system, the contact tracing system. <laughs> but the irony, because that is what most of the um, U.S. folks were helping them with during SARS. Yeah. But having had the SARS experience, they then knew how to do it, and. So, you know, when people talk about sending a lot of experts on the ground during the early days, that's sort of what they're envisaging. And yet that isn't really that much of what was needed. The Chinese had a pretty clear sense of how to organize things on the ground. Right, right, right. No, that's a very good point. Uh, Deb, one thing that Chinese researchers have come in for a lot of criticism over is unwillingness to share data. I know you have an interesting suggestion and explanation as to why they might may have been reluctant to share. Can you can you talk about that? Well, I think there are two different things. One is there may be some data they don't have, but the second is that they um, they're very much in a publish or perish world these days. <laughs> that the pressure for to have academic publications is at least as intense in China as it is in the U.S. And I would say 
possibly within their CDC more so in that there's, and there's a focus on um, bench science, laboratory science. Right. So, there, so the China CDC, as you probably know, actually originally was uh, an academic research institute and only became a CDC, which was very deliberately. I mean, there, it's not a surprise that the acronym is the same. It was very much modeled on the U.S. CDC, and it was U.S. CDC people who advised them mm -hmm, at sort of mm -hmm. every step of the way. And that only happened in December 2002. And there's still, I mean, when I talk to friends in the U.S. CDC, there's a feeling that there's still some relics of that academic research institute mentality. Which privileging in, bench scientists over epidemiologists, that kind of thing, right? And, and really wanting to collect that data and publish it rather than get it out fast. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh. there's feelings that... First of all, that was what they were focused on in the early days was, first of all, just dealing with the disease. And so a certain amount of data just disappeared because people were too busy dealing with the crisis, which is totally understandable. But second of all, trying to collect data sets to publish. Yeah. And so I think both of those are real factors. Um, when I talk to folks, they, people would have liked a lot more just collecting basic epidemiological data. And it's not clear that some of that was ever actually even collected, Produced, yeah. right? But that's partly because of a bias toward bench science, and it's partly because it was a crisis, and it's partly because of this tendency of the Chinese, of course, to... Um, decide to enlist the whole of society. So you have all kinds of people busy running around um, tracing and um, isolating people who actually don't know anything about how they would collect data because the week before they were, you know, a storekeeper right, or right, something. Right. So campaign model. <laughs> the campaign model. That was the word that was right. disappearing from my head. But yeah. <laughs> so I think there are a lot of reasons why they don't have it. And I think over time, as the accusations became more virulent and they were dealing with so much accusation, I think they became more and more nervous about sharing data. That's the other problem is this becomes a vicious circle, right? Right, right, right. Speaking of accusations, um, there's been a lot of, of hay made in some quarters in D.C. about uh, an embassy cable expressed concerns about a, a BSL-4 lab in Wuhan, the Wuhan Institute of Virology's lab. Uh, and, you know, that, of course, was, you know, suspiciously close to the Huanan seafood wholesale market where, you know, the first big cluster uh, was discovered. What do we know about this cable from, I think it was 2018 or 2017, and, and the way that it's been used to advance this so-called lab leak theory? Well, so first of all, what I remember from the original articles about it is that the cable was written because the Chinese were actually asking for more assistance, not less, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't about secrets. It was that they actually wanted to up their game, or certainly the people at the BSL lab in, in, Wuhan, in yeah. Wuhan did. But so the controversy is about something called gain-of-function um, research in viruses. So this issue originally emerged in 2014 in the United States when a guy at the University of Wisconsin 
um, published a study based on this idea of gain of function, adding functionality to a virus to see what it would do. And it was actually a bird flu virus and trying to figure out if it could become more infectious. Uh, the argument is this is a good way to do vaccine research. It's a good way to figure out um, uh, treatments. It's also a good way to figure out if a particular um pathogen is likely to become dangerous. There are people in the U.S. who are very much opposed to it. There are people very much in favor of it, top scientists on both sides of this argument. Um, The NIH had a big conference on this. The Obama administration um, limited, put some limits on gain-of-function research and the research that NIH was funding at the Wuhan Institute of Virology was one of the sets of research reviewed after this whole dust up in the US and these new standards, and it was deemed to be appropriate. So there actually had been a big review process within NIH on this. And the 2015 paper I referred to is one where they refer to the fact that it got this secondary NIH approval after it had already been essentially approved and paid for because of this concern. Mm-hmm. So, so this is an issue. I think there are concerns about, about this type of research that continue to this day. Again, as we go back to, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that this particular virus was produced by a gain-of-function study. And I've seen articles suggesting that the number of different mutations is not something you would do, that typically you add one mutation and see how it goes. You don't just sort of willy-nilly add a bunch of... Yeah, I've seen the same paper, right. Right. So, So there are a lot of arguments of why it isn't. And what seems also clear is the folks in Wuhan actively wanted to work with partners like Peter Daszak, like, you know, Anderson Lipkin, the other people who published, they weren't trying to be sort of nationalistic or, or whatever. They, they did research with tons of different groups. And so again, I just, you know, the best as I can see from scientists is you can't rule out that there was a lab leak. There have been lab leaks elsewhere in the world. But again, if there were, I don't think if the Chinese knew there were that we would have seen no response to that. And we've seen nothing to indicate anyone at the Wuhan Institute of Virology has gotten in any trouble. The the problem is that the the kind of low information types who tend to be, you know, Trump supporters, they're the same people who are they're prone to conflate lab leak with gain of function with bioweapons research. And they, 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 it all sort of blends in their mind so that when you have a Matt Pottinger shamelessly sort of you know, playing the access game with that uh, Washington Post writer, Josh Rogan, and just continuing to pump this stuff out there. I can't help but think that, you know, this is being sort of deliberately done to deliberately shift the focus of blame to China. I mean, and knowing full well that there's going to be this conflation. Well, 
well, we're in this weird situation, right? Where um, the percentage of Americans that have come down with this disease is far greater than the percentage of Chinese. Yeah, I mean, orders of magnitude, yeah. Yeah, and all of the techniques needed to control it, as I say, are mostly medieval, right? It's quarantine and isolation and, you know, simple things that were known back in the 14th century. And so, you know, you look at the situation of China where outside of Hubei, they did an extraordinary job, right? right? They, Despite the fact that it starts in Wuhan, there are very few outbreaks in other provinces and they're all brought very quickly under control. I mean, their ability to control is really extraordinary and people laud New Zealand and Taiwan and Vietnam as they should. But I think it's worth thinking about the 30 other provinces of China that did an amazing job as yeah, well. Yeah. And we did a very bad job. And so people are looking for somebody to blame. Yeah. Another uh, entity that comes in for blame, of course, is the WHO. Uh, a lot of criticism leveled against them in the last 13, 14 months, uh, with many people alleging that they've just been far too accommodating with China or that uh, Gabriesus is somehow in Beijing's pocket. Uh, how much of that criticism by your lights is deserved? And w what do you make of the WHO's handling of the pandemic to date? Well, I think it's been a real challenge for them. And each time there's one of these challenges, everybody discovers the flaws with the previous set of international health regulations, right? So as I said, at the last time around, there was no requirement to report new diseases. So they made sure there was a requirement to report new diseases. And they have all these clear lines for when they can decide it's uh, you know, a disease of concern when they can decide it's a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of criticism with the WHO for sort of delaying that determination by a critical week in, uh, was it? In yeah, March, right. I can't right, remember right, which month, right. right. And, but according to these regulations, they didn't have the data that they needed to make it a week earlier. So, one of the things that's interesting is to some extent, because there wasn't a clear set of rules, um, Gro Harlem Brundtland, who was the head of the WHO at the time of SARS, had a little bit more flexibility to make up her own rules as she went along. She basically threatened this travel warning that wasn't anywhere in the WHO rules. It just, the Chinese took it seriously because they thought it would be a negative. So they started responding. Now it's all clearly written out, and uh, they're clearly the rules again need to be updated. There are some gaps in the rules, but expecting WHO to do more than be able to coordinate activities, be a bit of an early warning. I mean, they are the ones who saw the notice in Wuhan. Um, and with SARS, it was also, it was a text message from someone in Guangdong to someone at WHO that told them that there was a problem. Mm. So WHO, it performs a very useful sentinel function, but what needs to happen in the future is one, there does need to be more clarity on the reporting and when or sort of indications of new diseases are reported. They have the requirement needs to be for less data than is current, you know, less confirmation. 
than is currently required. But the other thing is WHO runs this enormously successful sentinel surveillance system for flu. And clearly we need as sophisticated a system for coronaviruses and we don't have them. It was like an NIH funded study here and something there. And, you know, it just, this, this isn't going to be our last pandemic. And the real question is, do we learn from this one and prepare better, but also realizing the next pandemic may not come from China, it may come from somewhere else. And are we any more prepared for that? Two of the last three have come from China. We have, you know, of the coronavirus infections, uh, you, you had SARS, of course, and, and COVID-19, but also MERS, you know, from the, the Middle East. Uh, what seems obvious to I think to you and to me is that the Biden administration sees this opportunity to lay the groundwork for future cooperation. But instead, what I think I'm seeing is a framing by the administration of things like vaccine diplomacy as essentially competitive. What's your take on that? And what should we yeah. be doing to pursue collaboration with China uh, to to handle future pandemics? Honestly, that's the one that mystifies me the most because we have 7 billion people to vaccinate. And so it would seem most important to get everyone, every good vaccine out there to as many people as each one possibly can. And so I, I'm a little confused as to why it's being presented as an either or instead of kind of a yes and situation. Um So the U.S. under Biden joined COVAX, which is this global effort to provide coronavirus vaccines to poor countries, which the Trump administration had not. It's it's an interesting organization because it's partly WHO teaming up with two different Gates-funded private efforts, um, Gavi and CEPI, um, that are both about vaccines. And... So it's 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 kind of a public private partnership right. actually rather than a typical international organization but the US has pledged 4 billion dollars through that effort the Chinese also joined in October of last year right. um but one of the issues so it would be nice to see all of the vaccines go through sort of WHO approval processes, which a number of the Western developed ones have. But so, and I've seen that the Chinese have submitted, and it, I hope that that's moving forward because that would be useful. It seems like one of the issues is that COVAX just isn't moving fast enough. Mm. They they only just like last week or the week before sent the first set of doses to Ghana and it wasn't that many. And so everybody's trying to figure out how to get more vaccine out there, which also seems like it's fine. It's just why are you talking about it as this big competition as opposed to complementarity? And the there's been this big announcement that the quad countries, which is the U.S., India, Japan, and Australia, are going to try to fund Indian manufactured vaccine right. to go to developing countries. This makes total sense, right? So India has 60% of the vaccine production capacity in the world for standard, you know, childhood vaccinations. Mm-hmm. They produce a lot of it. So what... 
I think that would mean is a lot of these poor countries get their childhood immunizations through a UNICEF procurement process. So in any ordinary year, probably UNICEF is purchasing a huge bunch of India's production. So the idea that India is producing it, but India doesn't have the money to just pay for it to go to other countries and need someone else to pay sure. for it. Sure, and that all makes sense so far. Sounds good. But doing it under the auspices of the quad immediately introduces this sort of kind of geopolitics into it, yeah? Well, I mean, but the U.S. and Japan in particular often cooperate on aid. It was the 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 way they talked about it that made no sense is, you know, we need to do this to get our image out there because, I mean, there's all these quotes, especially in the Japanese press, right? Because the Chinese are doing this and it's like, why don't we just do it? Because there's a need for all this vaccine. And while China can probably fund a lot of the vaccine going to developing countries, India is a poorer country. And so it makes sense for the US and Japan and Australia to help, you know, pitch into right. to fund it. It's just the framing and that's problematic. It's the framing that seems like, why aren't we actually, I, I hope it's on the agenda of this meeting between Yang Jiechur and Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan to talk about how we can coordinate vaccine distribution and ensure that the world gets vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. The Anchorage summit that's coming up, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> so much is riding on, on, on Yeah. The- I mean, because one point I want to make, especially related to the Anchorage summit, is I think there's a tendency not to recognize that China does well in some areas and badly in others. And that includes how it treats its own population, right? That it actually has done an incredible job of trying to protect its population in the public health sphere, while at the same time, it has lots and lots of human rights violations that are really bad, right? And They also, they do well at certain policy challenges. You know, they are do much better at track and trace than they do at um, food safety, for example. That's been a huge challenge for decades, right? Their reforestation efforts are unbelievable, right? They started at 8.6% forest cover in 1949 and they were at 21% last year, and the goal in this five-year plan is 24% of the country, right? So it's a lot easier to check on forests visibly from the air than to figure out if some local farmer is adulterating his milk, right? right? So the sort of the technical nature of different areas, the um, interests of the government are different, and we're the same, right? Um, We get um, rovers on Mars, but we can't seem to stop a pandemic, right? right? So I think it's really important as we're moving forward to realize we have a lot of shared interests on the scientific side, on the public health side, on the investigation of um, new treatments, on promoting global vaccination and to not get that mixed up with other things where we have real conflicts. Yeah. Yeah. So focus on the complementarities and uh, yeah, I absolutely well, And agree. deal with the conflicts as conflicts. I'm not saying don't deal with the conflicts. I'm saying just don't scramble them. Hey, I just wanted to record a little addendum here. 
It's now the 29th of March. So, Debbie, in the time since we recorded, this lab leak theory has kind of come roaring back. We had Robert Redfield give an interview with CNN Sanjay Gupta the other day, uh, 60 Minutes piece last night, and, of course, uh, the WHO report now, which is preliminarily out. It hasn't formally been released yet, but some press organizations have had a look at it. What would you tell people who are viewing the lab leak theory now as plausible or even likely? Since we spoke, there have actually been three important pieces of news. The first is that there is a leaked WHO report from that big mission to China. And according to the AP, it says that an animal source is the most likely and that a viral lab source is extremely unlikely. So that's one important piece of news. But there have been two TV reports that I think are getting a lot of attention. The first is an interview between the former CDC director. This is President Trump's CDC director, Robert Redfield, who I think during his tenure was universally viewed as rather unimpressive, saying that he now believes it was a lab leak. It's worth noting this is not anything he ever said when he actually worked for the U.S. government. And even though Sanjay Gupta, the CNN reporter, describes Redfield's statement as an informed opinion with access to information that others don't have, Redfield actually makes it quite clear that it isn't based on access to information others don't have. He bases it on his view of the nature of viruses and how they grow. And what he rejects, I think most scientists would describe as not what they call the likely scenarios. So what he rejects is that it hopped from a bat to a human and was immediately highly virulent and highly infectious. But I think most scientists are still looking for some intermediate animal and are not actually claiming there was this immediate bad human jump. I don't think they're ruling out that possibility either, but I've never seen that as the main thing anybody's arguing for. So that's a little bit confusing. And what's interesting is in the same report, um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who I think almost everybody would view as a far more important virologist in the United States with a much more illustrious academic career, says that it's an extremely unlikely scenario. He doesn't rule it out, but he still thinks the more likely scenario is that it did move from animals to humans. And what he suggests, which I think we've heard from many other experts as well, is that it could have been in humans under the radar screen becoming increasingly infectious and dangerous over several weeks. I don't think Dr. Redfield's suggestion that maybe it started in September or October is particularly shocking. I think a lot of people think it started under the radar screen. And the fact that this disease, even when it becomes highly infectious, can be under the radar screen should be no surprise to us. It was under the radar screen in New York City, if you'll recall, for quite a long time. 
This disease didn't first break out in New Rochelle, New York, which remember all those um, quarantines back when. There were clearly tons of cases in New York City that simply weren't being noticed because it takes quite a bit for doctors to notice that elderly with pneumonia is a seriously new condition. And we're discovering they're not quick enough. So that's the CNN report. And I think, as Dr. Fauci said, he didn't see any reason to reject the more likely hypothesis, which mean, doesn't mean you say the other hypothesis doesn't exist. My issue is with the media spending all their time on it, not with the fact that sometimes unlikely scenarios occur. Then we have a report from CNN, which quotes Dr. Peter Daszak, who, you know, if you want to choose somebody who actually knows about the Wuhan virus lab, you actually have to choose someone who's done the work there, and that's Daszak. A lot of the stuff he's accused of now in the media is normal science. So he has Chinese government connections because he works with the National Natural Science Foundation of China, the NNSFC. You may notice in the middle of that acronym is the NSF. They were modeled on the USNSF, which has been an important partner of theirs for their entire existence. The whole idea of the NSFC was to start giving competitive research grants to good scientists. So it's not surprising that Dashak was there. In this CNN report, uh, this guy, Jamie Metzl, who is not any kind of a scientist, he has a PhD in Southeast Asian history, and he also has a law degree, But Metzl doesn't really have any evidence to go on. And while Dashak, like any reputable scientist, says he can't rule out the lab leak theory, it just is the unlikely theory, Metzl is quite definitive. But Metzl's main issue is the WHO investigation itself. And as we talked about earlier, The idea that these kinds of missions are going to do a full scientific study, I think, is a bit remote, especially given the political atmosphere. But this isn't just true in China. I mean, WHO always operates carefully and diplomatically. I think in the end, actually, Redfield made the most important comment. He said, science will eventually figure it out. I think that kind of a timeline is important to realize. He isn't suggesting that some quick mission in is ever going to be what figures things out definitively. I think we have a lot of evidence that the Chinese don't know where this came from either, that they fired lots and lots of officials in Wuhan and in Hubei province. They did not fire anyone at the lab. So It seems unlikely they think it happened at the lab. They've done a lot of speculation. That seems related to not knowing. But the more we make this a hot political issue, the more we emphasize what the reputable scientists like Dr. Fauci say is the less likely scenario, 
and not grant the benefit of the doubt, the less likely we're ever going to come to a successful conclusion. This thing has now been politicized beyond all reason. And I think, you know, my own experience talking to Chinese scientists in the last year is people just feel a lack of compassion, a lack of understanding that they were dealing with a new disease in difficult circumstances. Did they always collect the right samples and keep the correct records? Probably not. As we've now seen, did people in New York keep the correct records? A lot of times, no. This isn't so much whataboutism as the fact that this stuff is difficult in a crisis. And what I think Chinese scientists and Chinese doctors in particular wanted was a little bit of understanding, compassion, and concern. And instead, they're feeling a lot of accusation. And in that context, they're more supportive of controlling information and keeping their heads down than in a context where they felt like the rest of the world actually was interested in finding the answer rather than scoring points. So I think in the end, this is a kind of sad situation where it's really become politicized at the expense of science. But I don't think the Chinese alone are to blame for this. The level of vitriol coming at them from the West has been really unprecedented in the medical area. And it's too bad. I think it's worth noting, we all have our vaccines soon. And we're going to get over this one probably before we know the origins. That's been true of many diseases over time. The reason to want to know the origins is more about the next pandemic, not this pandemic. And I think for that, we really need to work on improving relations, not just with China, but around the world. We don't know where the next pandemic will come from. You know, H1N1 came from North America. It's not necessarily the case that the next pandemic comes from China. And so what we need are strong global institutions and strong national health institutions everywhere. And in that regard, there's a lot the U.S. could do that's really positive, that's not about this bilateral relationship at all. Thanks so much for letting me add a bit, Kaiser. It's great to talk to you. Bye-bye. Great advice. Thank you so much. Debbie, uh, It's it was wonderful that you were able to take so much time to join me for this conversation. Uh, really valuable. Let's move on now to recommendations. Uh, first, I want to remind all of you that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you like the work we're doing with this show and, of course, with the other shows in the network like New Voices or the China and Africa Podcast or our new China Stories Podcast or stalwarts like Tech Buzz, Strangers in China, uh, Middle Earth or China Corner Office, the new one, uh, then remember, the best way to support us is by subscribing to the SubChina Access newsletter. Go to subchina.com slash subscribe. And for new subscribers, you get your first two months for just $2. All right, let's move on to recommendations. Debbie, what do you have for us? So I have three COVID-related recommendations. All right. So first, 
I I highly recommend that everybody see Ai Weiwei's film Koro Nation with a capital C and a capital N. I think it's a beautiful film of what was going on in Wuhan in the early days of the epidemic. And, you know, he wasn't in Wuhan. He had all these people filming it themselves from their phones and everything else. And you see everything from sort of the life of a doctor in one of these um, newly built hospitals to um, the sad life of um, a migrant worker who worked on building the hospital and then gets somehow stuck, unable to go home and winds up living Uh. in a garage. Um, You know, it just... All kinds of different experiences. The the party stalwart to the people who are really cynical. It's it's very very interesting. And Where can you see it? It's. I think I just was it on like YouTube or I mean, if you just Google Ai Weiwei Coronation, you can like rent it for three ninety nine or something. It's very great, easy great, great, to great. see. Okay. Um, the uh, other one is if you have uh, if you haven't watched it during this pandemic, I believe now is the moment to go back and watch Steven Soderbergh's um, Contagion. Yeah, that yeah. that I I rewatched it to have my students watch it in the course I'm teaching this semester, and I was surprised at how many resonances there were because what I had remembered from watching it when it first came out was, you know, of course, the people foaming at the mouth and everything. And that part has no resonance. But when you see scenes like at toward the end of the film, when the father hosts the prom for the girl in the living room and, you know, the loneliness, the isolation, the kid trying to break out, the the human parts of the whole thing, I thought there was a lot more resonance there than I ever expected to see. (laughs) Um, Even though the way, just like in early COVID, we all thought it was all about the fomites. I mean, in that, that movie is definitely based on taking a SARS and making it worse. So it's all about the surfaces and everything and that thing. And then the third thing I would recommend, if you really just want to keep up with what you should be doing now is a podcast called, called In the Bubble that was originally started by Andy Slavitt, who's now the White House coordinator for Mm -hmm, COVID mm -hmm. stuff. And it's been taken over by the um, chief of medicine at UCSF, um, who I think his name is Bob Wachter, um, Dr. Bob. And it's just the interviews, I think, are terrific. And two recent ones, one telling you what's safe after you get vaccinated, which mm-hmm. I think is much more straightforward and hopeful than some of the I mean, you know, government issued instructions tend to be cautious. This was a little right. bit more straightforward and really helped me in figuring out what my mom can now do. And then recently he had one with a an epidemiologist in Israel about what's going on there that was just fascinating. So just all Did you see the the big New York Times piece? Oh, I'm sorry. Did you see the big piece? I can't remember where it was about uh about ultra orthodox communities in in Israel. Um, so I know that's a big issue. Um, it seems to be an issue they think they're starting to make headway with. Yeah. yeah, The, the fascinating thing in Israel is they have so many kids that until there's a childhood vaccine, they don't think they can reach herd immunity. Wow. Yeah. That one third of the population are children. So they're just not eligible for a vaccine yet. 
So that yeah. was news yeah. to me. So anyway, I highly recommend it. It's quite good. Great. Oh, thanks. Three excellent recommendations. Uh, my recommendation is for a, a piece in the New Yorker, Peter Hessler's latest, uh, "The Rise of Made in China Diplomacy." I don't know if you have you read that yet. Deb? I just saw it. I haven't read it. It's the best thing that I've read this year to date. It's unbelievable. It's so good. Well, of course he writes beautifully, but this looks at uh, Chinese entrepreneurs who were selling on Amazon into the United States uh, from Chengdu, where he now lives, uh, and from Yiwu, you know, in in Zhejiang, where he reports some of this. Uh, but it's also, you know, it's about China's pandemic response. It's about e-commerce. It's about trade and tariffs. Uh, it's about China's entrepreneurial energy and genius. Uh, also about, about, it's all about America. It's about how, you know, how they see from our spending pattern, you know, these weird off-brand shoes we buy on Amazon, <laughs> you know, what, what we, what we do with our stimulus checks, you know, you can see they, they watch so carefully the, the patterns of how we do this, um, you know, and discovering that Americans don't really save, do they? Um, uh, about American politics, about the orders for, for Trump flags versus Biden flags, for Trump 2024 flags, which was really puzzling to, it's, uh, really, it's just a great Heslerian story. Um, it's just in, in the mold on uh, where he finds the, the perfect little micro vehicle to tell a much bigger story. Well, he has to be the best product ever of the Peace Corps program in China, right? And Among many good products. Yeah, yes. there's some really and, great guys who've come. You know, people. back in the early 90s, I helped bring the Peace Corps to China. So, Well, yay. Yeah. Good for you. That's great. I mean, and uh, hopefully it'll be coming back, uh, waiting for an announcement from, from the State Department that the, the Peace Corps is back in China. Let's really hope for that. I mean, Fulbright's and the Peace Corps should be really good low-hanging fruit for us. Well, Deb, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a real pleasure talking to you, and I uh, learned a lot as always. Yeah, it's really lovely to talk to you, Kaiser. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Hey, hey.